welcome everyone to the weekly spotlight from Diversity in Apps. My name is Kabir Seth, and co-hosting with me again this week is Amy Kraft. Hello. Thanks for uh, thanks everyone for listening, and I'm super excited that Amy's here. We had a ton of fun last week co-hosting, so we're gonna make it a permanent thing going forward. Um, if this is your first time joining us, Diversity in Apps is a grassroots coalition. We're made up of researchers, producers parents and educators and our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive equitable and diverse children's media so this podcast is one of the ways we do that um, and the podcast pairs nicely with our newsletter that we send out every Sunday we highlight articles um, that talks about diversity in children's media or just sometimes just generally in in the media um, and then we pick a couple articles to discuss, and then we also um, welcome someone from the children's media industry. This week, I had Ginny Goodmanson on from uh, Tech with Kids. She talked about the recent conference where we actually I moderated a, a panel on diversity, and as well as her experience just sort of reviewing children's apps for for many years in children's media generally. Um, so that's a great interview. It's coming up. Um, after we talk about these couple articles. So, Amy, we would uh, be sort of doing a disservice if we did not talk about Pokemon Go, right? I'm not familiar with this game. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, yeah, it it's is... funny. It's definitely everywhere, and it's impossible not to try it out. I so know. I saw this hilarious tweet yesterday that was talking about Nintendo, um, how, like, three five years ago it was like we're not making an android game we're not making an iphone game we're still not making it and then 2016 it was like change the way you live your life like it was like mm -hmm. that all the things that it had ignored and then it just like launched this game so um i got a chance to play it I, I had been so pokemon i think for me was like maybe five years or four years after i would have been like i was probably like 13 or 14 when it came out maybe so i was like past when you would be into pokemon and um i i got a chance to play it yesterday i was with a friend i met her in the west village in new york and we we got drinks and then afterwards she was showing me how you walk around and you just like i don't really understand all of it yet but she was showing me like what a pokemon stop is and like where you so we caught a, a couple pokemon but um You've you've been playing it since I guess since the day it launched, right? Uh, day after. Day it after. It wasn't quite okay. the early adopter. <laughs> the day after adopter. Right, right. No, but um, I told I I can totally understand how it's addictive, and I guess I don't get all the stuff yet. Like what what is she didn't talk? There was like when I was reading this article, which I'll get to in a second. But like, what are the gyms and the there's like there's gyms where you can train them right after you catch well, them. Well, yeah, and gyms are where you get. Um, the Pokemon action of Pokemon games past, you know, where you can oh. battle Pokemon, you can level up, you can take control of a gym for oh, your wow. team. Okay. Um, so all of it kind of like leads up to classic Pokemon play, right? You've got to gotcha. collect them. 
you power them up, you know, they evolve, you train them. Oh, and I so see. it's just like, it's Pokemon play, but with exploring the real world. So it's actually a really lovely marriage yeah. of that, which I love how everyone's saying like, oh, Pokemon Go, you could have never predicted the success. It's like, of course you could have. It was already <laughs> a huge success. And then right. you map it onto something that just works so well with what that brand is. Yeah, yeah. I think that, um, I think there was a joke that was posted on the Facebook group page that children's and media professional page about how you know that there's just going to be endless meetings about okay how do we create a game like pokemon go and it's like completely ignoring the like 20 or 25 years of like franchise build up that had yeah. come before this and how it was just a natural marriage like you were saying so <laughs> so the articles that we wanted to talk about um are are they both had very intriguing headlines which i guess in this clickbait world we live in you you have to so the first one was eight reasons why pokemon go is the most important game of the decade and it was uh on the website dorkly which i think i should visit more often um by andrew bridgman and um he goes through um you know a, a ton of reasons one of um which was it brings back nintendo which i'm not sure is like a real reason but he he put one of those down but um he talks about how the, the thing you touched on it's it's a casual gaming taken to the ideal ending point but i think the the couple things that i noticed was it it is a very social game like even yesterday when i was playing it with my friend or watching her play it as we walked around like two or three people came up to us and was like one person was either like you know one person was like oh everyone's playing pokemon go or like another person was like oh you're playing i'm playing too and so there's a so have you seen that when you when you've been playing? Oh, for sure. Like I noticed I was walking through Fort Tryon Park here in northern Manhattan and I saw like a really big group of kids that are kind of all staring at their phone. It was obvious right. what they were doing, that that was a gathering place for them. And then when I was out playing it yesterday, like this like business guy is like is that that Pokemon thing? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, so what is it? You know, and so I, like, <laughs> I, I took him around a little bit and showed him what it was. But it is. It's like it is the perfect excuse to have a conversation with someone. With your neighbor, yeah. And they were saying that, like, um, the, in Sydney, like 2,000 players flocked to the same spot um, yeah. around the Opera House to catch these Pokemon. So, um, so that's interesting. The... Um, I guess how how does the, uh, the the other piece that I found about it was they were talking about just like it gets you it gets these kids outside they're moving and then they talked about how it's like improving mental health with yeah. and well-being with lots and lots of people um you saw that part of it, right? Yeah, and like, I mean, I feel like that's obviously all anecdotal at this point, but yeah. for someone to say I have serious social anxiety but this was an easy way for me to leave the house and engage. And right. that's huge, you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting, like, this launch hasn't been without its problems of how people use it. Some people getting into trouble. There's been the robbery. Sure. There's been the dead body found. You know, there's lots of, like, now mythic lore around it. Right. But I think, you know, it's hard for Nintendo and the game company, Niantic, to have guessed all of the different ways different people would have used it because never before have you seen this type of audience that encompasses probably four or five generations. Yeah, <laughs> like that's what they were saying. It's you know, such so a broadly it's appealing game. Right. It's like, you know, 
different genders, different races. And, you know, like everybody is playing this game. For sure. And I think the um, the other piece they were saying there was like 40% of the people that have downloaded it are um, people over 25, which I thought was was very interesting. Um, Although, I mean, it, like they really bank on the nostalgia piece. Yeah. Like, did yeah. you see they're releasing the mini NES? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did see Christmas. that. Christmas, it was just like, hi, right. nostalgia, right. here you go. Right, yeah, I guess um, that that does make a lot of sense. I thought it, it was just crazy to see that they had passed, um, they had passed um, Twitter, they had, or I guess they were on their way to passing Twitter, they were on their pa- way to passing um, Tinder, it was just like nuts how many um, installs they were seeing. And, you know, they talked about how like these companies have spent millions of dollars in nearly a decade to like build up the user base. And then Nintendo like beat them in a week of, of mm-hmm. their user base, which is crazy, which mm-hmm. again goes back to, well, you know, they have had sort of a pseudo user base for 20 years, but um, it's just amazing. Like I, I can't believe how, how much it's taking over. I think yesterday even Hillary Clinton was joking that they need to build a Pokemon go to the polls. And um, she got a lot of flack for it, but I thought it was hilarious. No, I've seen that joke from a bunch of places. Oh, it's really? Like the best thing that Nintendo can do is like make sure that there's a Pokestop in every polling yeah, station. Yeah, they said make sure you put really rare Pokemons <laughs> in the polling station, which I thought so was really funny. I don't really think funny. actually Hillary gets the original credit for that. Oh, like a lot of places. Now, when your friend showed it to you, did you get to see the avatar selection process? Because this was something, of course, you know, I always pause on. I did not. So she already had her avatar picked. When I was watching the video today, when I was showing it to my son, um, I saw that there was an avatar selection. So tell me about that. So given how much money that they've made in days, right? Millions and millions of dollars they've made. It's, you know, you get to choose a male body type and a female body type. And then all you can do is basically switch up their coloration. So you can change up their skin color, which is great. Mm -hmm. You can't change hairstyles. You just sort of pick colors and then you pick their outfit colors and their shoes and the backpack. And so on the one hand, it's great that you can play as both a man and a woman and you can play with different skin tones, but it's so like, just like a, base level of what you could do considering now the hit that this would be in. I'd love to now see them add to that and have different kinds of trainers. Right. That right. would be amazing. Yeah. Um, there, there does seem to be with that seven and a half billion dollar additional dollars that were added to Nintendo's market cap. I think like maybe we could get a few <laughs> different types of people. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I think they could they could find a way. So but I think it's been really interesting that they didn't. It doesn't seem like they fully considered all the different use cases of the audience and how different people might be play and how children will play differently than adults. And it's going to be really interesting to watch that, especially yeah. in the weeks. That's a, that's a really good point. I think um, they talked about they talk about this in the article, but. Um, Basically, the company that created this, right? What it's Nian- What's it called? Niantic. Yeah, they had created a similar game with a similar premise called Ingress. I think like three or four years ago, and um, obviously not even close to the same user base. Like at this point, does anything have even close to the same user base? But no. <laughs> um, it does. It didn't have the same user base, and 
um, from what I read, the Ingress game had a little bit more advanced features. I mean, like, there's this is like super simple gameplay, but again, that's what makes it appeal to like a broad audience. Like, this mm-hmm. is not um, super challenging, but um, the so I think they probably thought from the Ingress data they had enough information to be able to design, right? right? And like, they just never saw this coming. But I think you're right, like, but it's so amazing how quickly. Like people have a ad- like um, stores and like bars and all these places are adapting to it, right? Like they're they're taking it on right away. Like I saw this real estate listing that they had posted that was like um, two po- like right in between two pokey stops, and like obviously it was a joke, but like you know they're like playing to it. And then it was the same thing with um, with you know like there's like um, pub crawls now that like are Pokemon trails and stuff. Mm-hmm. I will say for anyone who wants to catch a lot of them quickly, I was Uh in the Wall Street area yesterday and I caught like 20 and a half an hour. There it is. There's your tip. Like not only is there a density of pokey stops, but there was what's called a lure on all of them. You know, so like clearly like the people with money to burn (laughs) in that area have like loaded up every pokey stop. So it was just like, you know, easy picking. So. Before we go to the other article, what's the difference between a lure and an, like incense? Like, what's that? I okay, so I haven't done it yet, but I believe incense is a lure. Like, you use your incense okay. to lure um, the Pokemon to your Pokestop. And then, do you have to um, do you pay for incense? So can... uh, you can earn it at your Pokestops. You can collect it, but obviously you can pay for it. And it's so shocking to me because, again, this is an app with a huge child audience yeah. that in the Pokemon store, you can go up to a $99 purchase at a time, wow. you know, and it's just, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just, yeah. if you know kids are going to be using your app, I'm kind of surprised Apple allowed it. It's a very, um, advanced, like it's a, it's very kind of an old school method, right? This like buying of coins or buying like the, game the game itself is like sort of almost a throwback like pokemon in itself is nostalgic but like the gameplay itself is almost a throwback right to like early app store this idea of like buying coins to to get there faster well i think you see a lot of it like even in still like candy crush you're buying like gold coins and gold bars and all that stuff to um sort of obscure how much you're really paying for things yeah I guess they hide behind it. So, mm-hmm. um, so you touched on it when we were talking about this first article. But the second article um, that came out, I think, probably like the day after this launch, or maybe the th- mm-hmm. I, I don't remember exactly. It was called "Warning." It's in Medium. It's called "Warning: Pokemon Go is a Death Sentence if You Are a Black Man." It's by Omari Akil. Um and again, it's um, it's a very um, you know the headline obviously makes you you click on it. Um, and it it was written probably a week after sort of the racial violence that we had um, over the last um, two weeks. And he talks about that up front. And then he talks about his experience playing the game. And he said he played it for about 20 minutes right before work um, one day. And he really – he was playing it for five minutes, enjoying it. And then he spent – it says – you know, I spent the other 14 minutes being distracted from the game by the thoughts of the countless black men who've had the police called on them because they looked suspicious or wondering 
what a Second Amendment exercising individual might do if I walked past their window a third or fourth time in search of a um, in search of a Pokemon. So um, it was it, it was pretty provocative. Um, and he he goes on. He sort of closes things with the premise of Pokemon Go asked me to put my life in danger if I chose to play it as it is tended with and with enthusiasm. So um, I, I I think the way I I when I when I read it um, I disagreed with it. I think um, because it's become such a fun, like. I, I guess here's what I'm thinking. It, because it's such a phenom now and so, like, in the mainstream, the um, the risks that he's talking about don't, associated with Pokemon Go, don't seem to be there. What do you think? Well, it's interesting because I, it is mainstream. And, like, the guy who said to me yesterday, like, hey, is that that Pokemon yeah. thing? Like, are is enough people everywhere. Like, are right. we in a bubble? Like when we say that of like, okay, well, everyone I know has at least heard of it. Right. But then I think, you know, what do my parents know about it in yeah. Illinois? You know? And so you don't need for like, like, I think maybe to his point, like the person who might look out and find him suspicious. If that person happens to have not heard of Pokemon go or could assume that that's what, like, also, I think when people hear about it, they picture kids, right? So if he is yeah, an adult black man playing this game, that's not, you know, to what he's saying in his experience, that's not the first thing that might jump into someone's mind. Right. It could be, like, you're thinking like a teenager, right. like a Trayvon right. Martin is, right. is playing. Well, and people have also talked about different aspects of safety, like police departments, NYPD, I believe has come out with guidelines about it. travel in groups, like make sure you're safe. Um, huh. You know, because of people. So the robbery story is that people like Ward did the Pokemon lore, got people to come to this parking lot and then robbed them. Really? So like there is, you know, you could, there is now a path to like, huh, not everyone's, this in a safe way yeah. so i think you know i would say too as a woman i still have to think about like well i'm not going to go by myself into a park at night to go catch a pokemon yeah. you know what i mean like i think that like the the things that still bind you in terms of like how you move around right in, in society normally still hold but people could forget that because they lose themselves and yeah i mean like i read the thing t before we came on there was an article that was just published on the washington post about the headline was about two guys who like walked off a cliff yeah um and so uh and then but it said in the sub headline that there there was something about um a guy like two people getting stabbed but then i read it was like at twelve thirty at night and mm -hmm. it was like well I don't, I mean, I guess I'm old, so, like, I'm in bed by then, but, like, why are you playing Pokemon Go and, like, the, uh, like you said, like, would I go to a park to go catch this Pokemon? Like, maybe it's just a really rare Pokemon, I don't know. I think it's, um, you're right, I, I might be speaking from a bubble. I guess what I'm saying is, like, yeah, you have to use some judgment there, but, like, it doesn't seem like Pokemon Go is the, um is the reason 
that you would be wary of going into a parking lot at one o'clock in the morning, right? Right, right. Yeah. Or, but I mean, I think because these pokey stops are all over the place, if it's secluded and you think I'm going to go explore over there because there's a pokey stop there, <laughs> it feels legit though. You know what I mean? Like if you're yeah. like, because part of the, the thing about the game, it's like, I'm going to explore parts of my neighborhood I never had before because right, of this, right. you know. I mean, the first so, article touches on how like he thought the gaming community was really nice. Like this is yeah. a really nice gaming community. So yeah, and like, hopefully that outweighs. I if the nice community holds and more people don't hear about it, you know, right. Hopefully this author can feel like he can play. But I respect that he feels that way, especially coming off of the weeks that we've just had. You know, for it's sure. sort of like just saying. Well, yeah, I th- the privilege we all have as we move around in public spaces is, right. is sort of like how I took this as. Yeah, I think he he ends it with that, with sort of like, um, you know, let's go ahead and add Pokemon Go to the extremely long list of things white people can do without fear of being killed, while black people have to realistically be wary. So, again, it's it's provocative, but I think it, um, you know, I get what what he's saying, and I think I get what you're saying too. Mm-hmm. Um, that does that does sort of um, make sense, I think. Um, there's a there's I'm speaking from a bubble and also um, it's it's just natural to sort of think of it as a, a kid walking around playing this yeah, game by himself. Yeah, yeah, and it's all of us talking about our lived experiences of it. Right, right, exactly. So speaking of nostalgia, the other mm. <laughs> articles we wanted to talk about are around Ghostbusters. Are um, you seeing re- it this weekend? I I don't have it on my schedule yet, but I definitely definitely want to see it. I've actually heard that it's um. It's it's definitely funny, but it's also scary. Um, one of the reviewers from Vanity Fair said that she saw it and like had like a nightmare about some sort of like ghost flies or something. I don't know. I'm I could be Leslie way off, but... Jones has said that she was like legit scared. Really, and was like some of those screams are real <laughs> because <laughs> apparently of like the way that they LED lit the actors playing some of the ghosts like looked really scary on. Oh set. really? <laughs> Because they did like a lot of um, practical effects that, of yeah. course, have been sort of enhanced digitally. But it sounds like I can't wait. Wow, that's it. you're seeing it on Sunday, right? I'm seeing it on Sunday, and I have not bought tickets in advance of a movie in years. I think yeah. I was saying like Catching Fire was probably the last time I did, but it's like right. I'm seeing it this weekend, right? In that's part awesome. because I really want to see it with my daughter, and she's going to go away to camp soon. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> So let the the couple articles, one was from BuzzFeed, one was from Vox, right? Yeah, so the Vox one um, has the title, How the All-Female Ghostbusters Reboot Became a Lightning Rod of Controversy. Now, I think that's a gentle way <laughs> what the last like year or so has looked at. When you first heard that this was happening and or saw the first trailer, whatever was your first experience, what was mm. your reaction to it? Excitement. I, I thought um, I love Melissa McCarthy. I think she's um, she's super funny. Um, so I was excited to see her. And then um, I liked the uh, I I liked both Ghostbusters. I was a kid when they came out. The second one came out when I was eight, so I was like the perfect age for that one. I know the second one gets um, beat up a lot, but the um, so both of them I I loved. Um, so. I, I yeah my my first reaction was excitement. 
Yeah, me too. I mean, I think when I first heard about it, it's sort of like when you hear people going back to the well. And um, I think the Vox story talks a little bit about that. And I also recently read an interview with Ivan Reitman on Vulture talking about Mm -hmm. how many different manifestations of a Ghostbusters 3 there have been floating through the works. And like kind of like all the different reasons why that never came to pass. Yeah. Um, So... I think had there been a Ghostbusters 3 and had there been a Ghostbusters 3 with the same cast prior to Harold Ramis's death, I can't say I would have been so jazzed to see it. D- However, jazzed to see Ghostbusters 3. Ghostbusters with, gotcha. again, with Bill Murray. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. It yeah, would have so, been, I think also because the second paled in comparison to me, to the right, first. Already, right. it felt like just going back to... To the well, yeah. Whereas yeah. the first one, you know... Right. I dressed up um, for one Halloween, the Halloween that that came out as um, the logo. So I was a ghost and I had this big cardboard. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So I I wish I had a picture you can share. That's that's sort of what I learned from the Ghostbusters, from the Vox article was I didn't realize how, or like, I guess I was just unaware of how many iterations of this the rumors and sort of confirmations and the fights about Ghostbusters three that, um, that fans had been, um, you know, eager for, um, and all that being said, like it's clear the vitriol is not total is not really about that. Right. 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 Well, and there's, um, you know, I think it links to this, like there've been studies about if projects are all, mm-hmm female actors um or are clearly meant for a female audience like if or if men perceive it as being for a female audience like the ratings go down like the average ratings on say rotten tomatoes or things like like men will downvote it just to do it you know just because it's not for them therefore i'm gonna downvote it but also this idea that this isn't for them because Mm -hmm. it's an invitation to include more people into right. the fold it means that it's not for them anymore when it, of course it is. This is a Ghostbusters for everybody in the same right. way that the original was. Right, right. Um, exactly. What was really, in the Ivan Reitman interview, which maybe we should post as well too, just because it's for got sure. some very interesting tidbits. So he was talking about like all the drama and Bill Murray never wanted to do another one, whatever. And then as they were like wrestled the way the, the rights to do a new one without the original cast, male comedic actors did not want to go anywhere near it. They were afraid to do it. And huh. guess who wasn't afraid to do it? You know, Melissa yeah. McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, like all these like very funny women. Right. And then when you marry them in a movie with Paul Feig, who right. really likes to let these women shine, like right. it's just like the way that Paul Feig describes it, he's like, I just wanted to cast the funniest people I know. Yeah. And this is who the funniest people I know are. Um, right. So, it's just a different way of perceiving the world. But the vitriol has been fascinating. Like I was even looking at the toys on Amazon because I want them. <laughs> <laughs> but even in the, those comments, no, it wasn't a lot. But there were enough to say like one star because this movie's going to suck. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it, why? <laughs> right, right. I think there was somebody who tweeted, like someone tweeted out like, of course, like IMDb has it at a 3.8 rating. 
but Rotten Tomatoes has 77%. And then, like, somebody tweeted back at, at this person, like, yeah, because the people who, who write the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes have seen the movie, right? Like, IMDb, basically, like, anybody can go there and give it one star and be done with it. And, like, there's no, like, did you actually see this movie? Mm-hmm. So that I think the thing that bothers me the most is the the part where they try to hide behind some other reason why they don't they aren't they are choosing not to like the movie right mm-hmm. like this whole thing about how oh this is a big cash grab by right. sony it was like you're kidding this movie franchise is is created to make money you're kidding like as opposed I, I, to every other movie right in summer <laughs> right like what did you think like the purpose of these movies are like it's mm-hmm. it was just such it's it's like this silly stuff and then when dan Aykroyd came out and said like i saw the screening their genuine performances by these really funny women he got a bunch of crap from these people like this guy yeah. invented ghostbusters like and they're and he's getting like annihilated on Twitter about what he said that, you know, he's a sellout. Like it's just, it's really stupid. I, I, that's the part that bothers me the most. They're hiding behind this other, these other reasons why they're pretending to hate the, the movie when the, it has nothing well, to do with it. Well, it's ethics and game journalism, right? Right. It's, right. It's, it's exactly that. It's, you know, we don't want women messing up our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What's interesting, though, is I feel like is some of the controversy, like uh, Vox specifically is talking about, like, the misogyny thrown at mm-hmm. this. But, you know, I think that there have been some interesting other controversies. Like, when the first trailer came out, a lot of people remarked about, like, mm-hmm. why is Leslie Jones the only Jones, one who isn't yeah. a scientist? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I thought that that was a really interesting critique. And, of yeah. course, you know, like, I want to, like, close my ears to it and go, like, oh, but I'm so excited about my Ghostbusters. But right. it's funny, like, because then I found myself, like, getting defensive, <laughs> which right. is silly. But it's a really valid question about, you know, like, as we think about casting, like, is it enough that, like, okay, they've subverted the expectation that these would all be men, but now we have right. to think about, like, now what are our expectations of, like, what the white actresses are doing versus the black actress. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I agree. I'm such big I, I fans thought, of all of them. <laughs> right. I, I thought it was a valid criticism. Leslie Jones got really hot on Twitter about it. She was really yeah. angry. Um, she tweeted, I think, like six or seven times about how um, it, it wasn't valid criticism. But um, I think Paul Feig said something about it, right? How they had, or like Melissa McCarthy was going to do, was going to be the MTA, and then he yeah. felt like the role. Um, was something that she had done over and over again, and it made sense to switch it up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I guess is um, okay. That I mean, that's probably true. Um, it's just like I, I think it was it it was a a different lens to look at it at through, and and I thought some of that rang some of it rang true. I think it was very like you were saying you got defensive about um, Ghostbusters. I think that was like the same thing. Um, last week when we were talking about J.K. Rowling, like mm-hmm. I think like I had been purposely like ignoring the criticism. Like I would read bits and pieces that you had sent me, and then finally like I had to force myself and sit down and read it because I, you know, you don't want these things um, to to get you know like you, they're very personal to you. Which I get some of that with Ghostbusters. I like I never felt that attached to it. Like I didn't dress up like the <laughs> the symbol, but. 
Um, <laughs> but like, I can totally get where people are coming from. But I think like the, I mean, 27 years have passed since this movie, right. since the second one came out. Right. Like, and you know, some of the criticism of it being a reboot as opposed to, um, a continuation. I, I don't know how they would do that. Right. Like how would they, um, you know that wasn't how they wanted to do it and then i actually went back did you did you read the plot summary of what this ghostbusters video game was like dan Aykroyd said that that was basically what ghostbusters 3 was gonna right be. if you want a ghostbusters yeah 3, play the, go play this the, video yeah. game yeah so i went and read the plot of um this video game on wikipedia and it seemed pretty interesting but at the same time like i, I don't think i followed the whole thing um, when I was skimming it, but like it did, though seem like a, like they did bring elements back of of Ghostbusters two and like how there was like a new boss or like a big bad. There was a big baddie, but he was related to the second baddie. But um, so yeah, I I think um, I think coming it, back around to the cash yeah. grab thing, I feel less of it as a cash grab that they're trying to reinvent it. And I think casting is a great way to reinvent something or give you pause to say like. Now I'm actually interested in seeing what they're right. going to do with it. it. Like I was thinking about like what are some corollaries to that. And I remember when they were casting Hunger Games and they cast Lenny Kravitz as Cinna. And it was uh-huh. like, oh, you have huh. my attention. One, right. I didn't know he was an actor. And two, right. it's just like, it's just, uh, that's not how I pictured Cinna. But now I'm really excited to see that yeah. Cinna. You know, so it's like, not that I wasn't excited for Hunger Games anyway, because right. I was a big fan of the books. But yeah. I think when you make some of these really exciting casting choices, like, it's just like, I want to see how that plays out. Right. I think that's a really good point. I think um, they were talking about this with um, Ocean's Eleven. Like, yeah. they've done... Ocean's 13 and they were talking about I don't know if it's still happening but like the next Ocean's 11 or Ocean's 14 or whatever was going to be all women mm-hmm. and like that um, I, that got my attention like I don't think if Ocean's 14 was coming out and it was like the same group I like I don't even think I saw Ocean's 13 um, so I, I think you're right like by making these sort of different choices and some would say bolder choices like it's it's more or just interesting like shake it up like what are we yeah. going to see that same group of guys do or right. like everyone's saying like it's time for either a black bond a female bond mm-hmm. you know it's just like we've seen the white dude bond right since the dawn of time and i am no interest but like you know give me something someone new and i think star trek is right on board with that you know so yeah. it's you know uh, as they were saying, having Sulu be gay now, yeah. I think is yeah. like it's, and like as you hear the actors of the new Star Trek talking about it, it's like we're bringing this to a new audience. We're in a different right. time. We have to live in the time that we're in. Yeah, um, and I think it's really exciting. Yeah, I totally agree. I I think um, what Star Trek's doing, obviously, what Star Wars already did right. um, with, um, and then what it seems like they're doing with Rogue One. Um, you know, again, having the, the main character be a female surrounded by these characters that are not all white. Um, yeah, I mean, you're reflecting the world you're living in and the world mm-hmm. that and and the audience that's um, that's going to go see this. Which this is funny, movie. not that we weren't always living in that world. But <laughs> right. Like, just that, like, we're ready to, like, have all of our media reflect yeah. what society actually looks like. Right, right. Good point. Yeah, for sure. Um 
so yeah, this was um, the these were interesting. I thought the the Vox article, um, you know, covered sort of more ground, whereas mm-hmm. the BuzzFeed article was just awesome. Like, um, so the BuzzFeed article with, just has yeah. the picture to end all pictures, which right. a lot of people have probably seen this making the rounds. It was trending on Facebook. It's just Kristen Wiig with two little girls dressed up like Ghostbusters. And just the look that they're all giving each other, it's like, it's just like, everyone be quiet, let us have this moment. (laughs) Right, exactly. Like, how are you going to get mad at this picture? Like, it's just, um, it was just awesome. I love the article. And like, actually, when you and I were talking, um, when we were chatting about it, I had I had said, well, maybe we should do it next week. And then I I clicked on the link and read through it. And I was like, no, let's do it this week. Like, I, I just felt like um, it was topical. And it was like just a really it's just a really awesome, cool thing. And like you can see, like, it's everything we talk about, how kids need to see themselves in the media that they, uh, you know, consume all the time. And here are these two little girls and they're singing. They're like, this is like, this could be me. I could be a Ghostbuster. Like, it's awesome. I'm raising a boy and I don't want him to think that life is all about boys, that Mm -hmm. only boys do these things. So it's as important as it is for girls to see them doing things. It's important for boys to see that construction jobs aren't always held by men. You know, it's just as important for them as for girls. So it always like, you know, I was saying my I've done a good job training him because he was reading this book called Dig Dogs Dig where all the dogs are construction workers except for the one dog wearing lipstick because that's (laughs) how we know she's a girl Um, and he's like he kind of picked up on that and then he like flips through the pages and he's like why is there only one girl dog right and I'm like Yes. You know, it's that moment of like, you know, we can teach our kids to question this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think the more that you just sort of like pointed out like, huh, that's weird. Or when we watch Power Rangers, he's like, why are there like five boy rangers and two girl rangers in this episode? I'm like, yeah, it kind of doesn't seem fair, right? He's like, no, it should be equal numbers. I'm like, right. Right, right. (laughs) I mean, if like, you know, obviously like it's not all like equal all the time, but like just that he questions it makes me happy yeah i know that that's what i was getting at is like this idea that like yes it's good for the girls to see themselves as ghostbusters but it's important that boys also see that girls can do this and that's like sort of what you were getting at that this this movie is not for girls or not for women it's for everyone and, for everyone um so everyone should go see it this weekend that's my... and men should feel like now that it's got women ghostbusters it's a chick flick right. like it's just we don't, i don't think we should be raising our sons to feel that way. Yeah. Like it's got women in it. Therefore it's only for women. Right. I only go see things with dudes. Yeah. Um, so I think like, it's great. I think take your sons, take right. your husbands. <laughs> right. Yeah. If my little take guy was everybody. a little older, I, take it. I absolutely, I totally agree with you that like, I think that is like an important conversation that um, we need to continue to, to hammer home. So yeah. I will say, I'm saying I'm taking my daughter to see Ghostbusters only because my son is six and I heard it's really scary. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll fair be enough. super excited for him to see it right, when in it, a couple of years. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. That's going to do it for our article wrap up. Thanks, Amy. And coming what? up, we have a great interview with Jenny Goodmanson. Mm-hmm. 
A little less than a month ago, I had the privilege of moderating a diversity panel at the third annual Tech with Kids Developing Apps for Kids conference. Um, it was a great event, and my guest today is host and organizer for the event, Ginny Goodmanson. Ginny, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Kabir. It's great to be here. And so can you tell us, I know this was the, the third annual conference, can you give a little background about sort of how the conference came to be, how you've seen it change, maybe grow? in the past few years? Sure. So um, the conference came about uh, because I was aware that the this is a new industry. You know, uh, children's apps haven't been around right. very long. And sure. as an industry, they see when I was talking with CEOs, they seem to be common threads of, of sort of issues or pain points that um, all app developers were having. And it made sense to me that during the week that a lot of app developers are in town to San Francisco because I purposely put the conference during the week of Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference, right, right. that that would be a good way of being able to bring a lot of the key players into a room to have a discussion. And so that was the, the idea behind the conference was to help further this industry moving forward by giving them an opportunity to talk to each other. And so right. what I have done every year is I set up panels based on topics that I, I do a polling of a large group of CEOs of, of kid app developers. Mm -hmm. and, and I sort of t discuss with them what are the issues that year, and then I set up panels based on the kinds of um, ideas that I've gotten from talking to the various CEOs. At which, and then at that point, then I start inviting speakers. So what distinguishes this conference, I think, from other children's media conferences is that this is a conference that isn't sponsored by anybody. I mean, right. yes, Tech with Kids puts it on. <laughs> as a consequence... You can't pay to speak at this conference. You get, sure, sure. You get to be at this conference, a speaker at this conference, you have to have an invitation from us. And right. we invite you based on the fact that we know you have information that is interesting. And so <clears throat> I think that's what really does uh, differentiate this conference, and it allows for a very high-level, intense conversation. And the other thing is that it's only panels, so that you're not going to be hearing a, you know, elevator speech from somebody sure. about how great their product is. That's not the nature of this. Um, it is basically the top people from the, the almost all of the big players, most of the intermediate players, and then... Um, smaller players that are doing interesting things, we try to include them as well on panels. And um, as a consequence, it's fascinating because it's amazing to me how much these CEOs will share of yep. what they experience. Yeah. So, that was the that was that was sort of the two things that I took away from it. One, as you mentioned before, the intensity of the conversations. I think the panels were very serious. Um, yeah. You know, this the app business is incredibly difficult to get traction um, yes. and you know you've brought in um, sort of senior people who are sort of 
living this every single day. They've probably been living it for um, for three plus, five plus years and sort of know that the, the grind that's involved. So there's an intensity. And the second piece that you said, their willingness to share, sort of um, it's almost a recognition that the people in the room are sort of all going through it together and yeah. um, they're willing to sort of look out for each other to to make sure their success across. Um, and amazingly, amazingly candid. I right. mean, you know, it was incredible to me the kinds of comments that were made by these very high-level executives. I mean, they basically, you know, looked out to the audience and said, don't do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that Absolutely. was, her, wow, that was a, you know, really important kind of message that somebody that credible who's tried it is saying, look, it just wasn't worth it. You know? Right, right. And then they said, do, do, we found success in this. I, that yeah. was the other thing that I gotten a lot of feedback about after the conference that there just were lots and lots of nuggets that came out that made people think about things in a different way. Absolutely. And, and I think it was also, you know, when one group would sort of talk about, well, you know, social media marketing worked for us in this way. And another group sort of said, like, we tried it that way. It, it didn't work. So, you know, you have to sort of, um, you sort of have to experiment. It, there was clear discussion and there was a respectfulness that, hey, okay, it worked for you. It didn't work for me. And sort of turning to the audience being like, look, you can sort of see that sometimes it works because of however the app is or however the branding was, etc. So I, I think it was um, that a lot of that was was very interesting how open they were and also um, how how much the audience was clearly engaged with with wanting to soak up um, what the what everyone had to say. So um, right. it, it was right. really great. Oh, good. Um, and Kibir, yeah. we purposely, you know, as you know, but from attending, we, we had six panels. Um, we tried to cover, you know, sort of the some very important topics in those. We we got into marketing and discovery, which is yeah. you know a big issue. We got into the importance of play. I mean, these are these are products for children. Let's talk about the importance yeah. of play. Um, we did a special this for the first time. We did a call, uh, a panel on women in tech, and instead right. of going sort of the negative route of oh gosh, this is what's happening, we went. Um, sort of a celebration that, you mm-hmm. know, and tech can be very successful. And we, we, we showcase three um, CEOs that are doing really well. Right. Um, and three distinct things that they're doing. I, th- yeah. I thought that was really yeah. interesting. That, that was fun. Then we did diversity for the second time. So we called it diversity 2.0 and, and you were right. the moderator and did a brilliant job on that. <laughs> Thank and you. Then, <laughs> and then we did um, strategies for making money in the kids app space because it's complicated. You know, right. a lot, you don't have a lot of the, the ad revenue models that exist in the, in the bit for the bigger players doesn't yeah. work for kids. And then um, we also talked about uh, designing learning apps for the consumer market and school. and yeah. for the school market. So yeah, we covered a lot of topics um, yeah. in that in that period of time. So. Absolutely. Yeah, it was great. And, and I think you mentioned there were sort of little nuggets that you could pull out from each piece and you sort of started things off by um, by sort of greeting everyone and then talking about aha moments and and sort of how um, how important that's been for you and sort of um, how important it, it should be for for the audience as, as they sit through this conference and then just generally in life. Do you want to share some of those 
um, you know, one or two of those aha moments that, that you talked about um, from your personal experience? Sure, sure. Uh, I, as you said, I'm a big believer in aha moments. <laughs> if you can recognize them, and that's the key, is that there are sometimes things that happen in your life and you can either act on them or not. And mm-hmm. and my my take is that an aha moment is when you get sort of that piece of information or that situation and you do suddenly realize that you can act. And if you do act, many, many times it radically changes your life. And and so then I shared with the audience how I was originally um, uh, a lawyer. I'd gone to law school. I was part of that uh, first wave of large groups of women going to law school. And mm-hmm. as a consequence, I was the first female attorney hired in my high-profile law firm. I would, at that point, I was in St. Louis. <laughs> and, and it was interesting to me, um, I was in the merger acquisition area, which is a very time-intensive area of the practice right. of law. Right. And, and I, I talked about how one of my very first aha moments came after the birth of my first son. And I was on maternity leave, and I was wrestling very, very, very conflicted by the fact that I had a profession that didn't lend itself to regular hours, and I had to work weekends, and I was trying to figure out how was I going to parent this son that I was madly in love with, Mm -hmm. with balancing with my workload. And, And an aha moment for me was was when I went and I talked with the senior partner who I had worked very closely with for years, and I said, you know, I'm really wrestling with this. And and then he did what he thought was going to then, you know, be the brilliant move that would make me for sure come back after maternity leave. And he he gen- he was very, very uh, gracious and generous. He offered me the partnership at the law firm two, two years early if I'd come back wow. on wow. And so what the, the reason that that was an aha moment, it backfired for him. Right. But for right. me, <laughs> he validated my worth to him. And that gave me then clarity of where I was in my life, and it gave me a bargaining chip. And so I, I quickly said, okay. So, you know, I thought about it. And my way of coming back to him was to say, look, I really want to be my son's parent. I want to, I want to explore this, but I also am very interested and I can see I have value to your law firm. And I was able to work out a deal where I was a stay-at-home mom during the week. And then when my husband was home on the weekend, I went in and became this weekend warrior for him, for the lawyer, right. for the law firm. And I would, you know, they would set aside projects for me to do in a two-day period. And, you know, that worked for me, and it worked for them. So it was one of those aha moments where you suddenly realize that you can make change. Um, I think the other one that I think the room got a big kick out of was that the same son, I have two sons, but um, Ted uh, was a preschooler and we were out visiting in the San Francisco area because my sister lived in that area and she had her own marketing firm 
And she was working with a little startup who was creating a new reading game on the computer. And right, back right. at this time, this was not, you know, people didn't have computers in their homes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was sort of amazing that that's <laughs> what it was, right? right, right, so, right. Teaching reading on the computer was just this, you know, really exciting concept. So um, they were they wanted to have a preschool kid tester. So they asked if Ted would be that kid tester. And when I watched my son just become so highly engaged at <laughs> learning to read on the computer, that was my second, you know, what I described as my second aha moment. To right. The- Right. Because what happened was that little startup was the learning company. Yeah. The game was Reader Rabbit, which <laughs> then went on to become the seminal reading product for the whole generation of kids. Right. And that experience motivated me to then pivot. I said, okay, I need to really start paying atten- attention right. to software and computers. And I became... Um, this tech evangelist. I started setting up computer labs in all the schools in my area. I eventually got hired by schools to be a consultant on what they should buy, and I trained teachers on how to use technology. And it led to my starting a little newsletter, which eventually became my, my you know, full-fledged magazine. Um, it was picked up by Barnes and Noble. That was another whole story. Right, but, right. You know, anyway, there are lots of aha moments, but that one again changed the way I looked at things. I pivoted and became eventually, you know, where I am now, which is a tech journalist and a uh, reviewer of children's tech. And right, right. for years, for fifteen years, I've done that for USA Today. I was their kid tech columnist. I still contribute to them. And, you know, so really did radically change my life. Yeah, for sure. I, I think both the stories were, um, you know, they were definitely different, but they were so um, distinct. And you could definitely tell that they were aha moments. And like you said, right. it's about recognizing them. It is. And, it is. And actually doing something about it. Sort of don't let the moment pass you by. And sort of where it leads you, the path that it leads you is, is going to be different. But that's part of, of the aha moment. So... Um, it was it was really great stuff. I, I really enjoyed um, that that opening um, speech and that sort of opening welcome to to everyone. I know certainly there there probably weren't as um, as as many moments, but did you have sort of any aha moments as we were going through through the day of of the conference and sort of the the various panels that um, that you saw? Yeah, well, I think there were aha moments. I hope for the participants to the conference sure um in the sense that i don't think they were aha moments for me and because clear i i live and breathe this stuff <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I mean, well i'm trying to help the industry do things better and right. that's the nature of you know there are reviewers out out there that simply sort of look for the worst to sort of create that propaganda stuff about how you know they can come up with that splashy headline and mm-hmm. and about how terrible something is or how dangerous it is and that kind of I'm not that kind of reviewer right. I I my purpose is to help anybody dealing with children find the best tech products to, right. to, to right. encourage children so for me I did think there were several things during the day that came out and and the one thing that 
that seemed to repeat itself on every single panel was that anyone in the space in children's media, if you have a product, you need to kid test it. <laughs> kid test it, kid right. test it, kid test it. And I can tell you that I open up things every single day where it's very clear to me that whoever developed the product had never put it in front of a child. Mm -hmm. That seems incredible to me, and I'm sure it does to you, that if you're making a product for a child, right. don't you kid test it? But yeah. Yeah. believe it or not, they don't. Or they test it with their own children, and that's just not a realistic... <laughs> that's cheating. <laughs> well, if you're in the world of kid tech, your kids are obviously going to be very tech savvy. Right. You need a very, you know, a very broad spectrum of a lot of different kids coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds to be able to figure out whether a product's going to work. Right. Absolutely. So, anyway, that was one of the ones. That yeah. I, yeah. You know, that right. one. That one jumped out. At. You're right. I, I think that did echo sort of throughout the the need for kid testing and also sort of an unbiased. Um, on unbiased kid tests was was particular important. Um, when we when we talk about the diversity panel, um, you know, you you like you said that this year's was sort of called diversity 2.0, and last year sort of um, you know launched a, a discussion around um, a diversity, and um, I think it was sort of at at the leading edge. Diversity hadn't sort of come into the mainstream as as a discussion point across children's media. I mean, especially not in apps. So right. how have you sort of seen this discussion change around diversity and sort of have you seen that in the reflection of the, the apps that, um, that, that you review over the last year? Yeah, um, and it's funny because that was the panel at last year's conference right. that was very personal to me. I, it was the one topic that did not come up in the CEO discussion. Yeah. And and yet it has I you know I've been been reviewing children's media for twenty years. It's a, it's been a, a, uh, right in the forefront of everything I've looked at for a long time. And particularly, I wrote the um, for dummies book called iPad Apps for Kids. Mm -hmm. and I can remember I had you know I had an outline and I had chapters in that book that I wanted to make sure that I thought really fit the way families use technology and what I found sometimes was I get into a chapter and I couldn't find an app that fit that didn't have some sort of problem with the diversity representations mm -hmm. and so I remember at that point I started writing app developers and I said to them I'm in the middle of writing this book I really like your app but I have issues with these representations if you have any interest in changing it, please let me know because then I would put you in the book. <laughs> Otherwise, I will not. Right. And it was, I mean, it was sort of an outlandish thing to do, but at that point I was just frustrated, right? Yeah, yeah. Because people just hadn't thought about it. Right. And what I found was I got to the, every single one of these emails I sent, I got a positive response back. Oh my God, we never even thought of that was there right. response. Right. It was, and so it was. A, I was very much aware that people are trying to do it right, but they didn't know how to do it right, or they hadn't. They hadn't realized that they they just were being blind to this issue. 
And so that when I pointed it out to them, they immediately fixed it. And so that was the beginning of realizing, okay, let's have a larger discussion because it's clear that people want to do the right thing. They just aren't thinking about it in the correct manner. Let me give you an example. After the first conference, and again, the first conference, we didn't do anything about diversity, but I was Mm -hmm. sitting down talking to um, an attendee, and and this um, man was showing me a new app that was going to be released in the next two months. So I was getting an early peek. Right. And it was a construction app. And and I could see that it had one, it did at least have one woman in the construction app, but basically it was all men. Right. And it was a, it was an interactive app where kids were going to be, you know, they're going to drive the drunk dump truck sure. and they're going to do all these fun things, right? And I said to him, I said, why do you not have more equal, equal women? And yeah. he looked at me and it was just like shocked. And he said, it's it's gonna be a it's a boy app. I mean, boys <laughs> play construction apps. And I and I said to him, I said, well, I agree with you. Your target audience probably is going to be little boys. But I said, but there are little girls who are interested in this. I said, but that's really not the importance. The importance is that you are going to then continue the stereotype. Mm-hmm. That this profession is for boys. I said, because now you have this little three-year-old or four-year-old who is only seeing boys do this profession. Yeah. I said, what if you put equal, now they now you no longer bias that child in terms of what is right for anyone. Yeah. And the app developer looked at me and went, you're absolutely right. I've just never thought of it that way. So that right. was, again, we talked about aha, that was an aha moment for, for me. For sure. For sure. I said, I really need to do a panel on that. So right. that's what brought about that first panel. Yeah. And then you guys got started and the diversity right. and apps group. And I knew that you were working on this toolkit. Right. And I said, great, let's do another one. And then <laughs> let's do a little bit more structure as we take it farther. Because that first year we talked about, you know, how, some of the issues we had. Sure. The president from Toka Boca saying, you know, we're trying to do it. He started off the panel two years ago saying, we try to do it right, but we screw it up frequently. And, mm-hmm. and you know, that was a great way to start it off because right. I think Toka, uh, Toka Boca, out of all of the app developers, is somebody that I think we all can agree has really made a big effort yep. Yep. in terms of diversity. And when he gets up and says, We've been trying to do it right, but we screw up. You know that set the tone for stuff. So yeah, for sure, um, I, yeah. I think there's definitely been sort of this spectrum, like you were saying, where um, maybe it it started out with sort of ignorance or not even thinking about this, um, thinking about diversity when creating it, and sort of then trying to find answers in a way, um, you know you know, how, how should we think about this? And I think that's what sort of launched us into, um, the dig toolkit, the need to, to have this. And, right. um, and where we are in the world right now, I mean, these are still huge issues that are playing out in Texas and all of these places around the world right now. We still have real, real racial issues going on. And one of the things that we can do is we can start with a generation of children. And if we, start changing the landscape of what people look at 
Mm-hmm. You change the way they they think about the world. And it's just really easy to that extent. I mean, I love the fact that uh, Bajorn Jeffrey, the CEO right. of Gaboka, on your panel said, um, diversity is easy. You just have to do it. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, there it is, right? right, right. I mean, it, it is easy in terms of it, but... But I just don't think that a lot of creators of children's media think through it correctly. Yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. I think, um, you know, a couple of things you touched on. For sure, I think kids seeing themselves in the tech that they're playing with, in the media that they're consuming is is hugely important. And I <laughs> think it, and then, you know, the, just seeing a diverse group of, of people um, can change how, how people view um, each other. And then I think it's incredible you know developers need um they need to think about it at the beginning of sort of designing the app and that's sort of what the toolkit um is is built to do is to really have it as a part of your product development process not something that sort of at you know when you're going to launch your app in two months you know Ginny has to sit down and, and tell you that hey you need to think think through this it should be something that's sort of already built into it what um what would you tell Sort of, if you had a room of of developers, what would you tell them when you're thinking about diversity and inclusion? Look, here's one thing that you should focus on, or here's something that you should make sure you do um, if you're not going to do anything else. Not that we want them to not do anything else, but what would you think would be critical for them to to think about? Um. So, unfortunately, I'm not sure I can say one. (laughs) You're going to have to. Fair enough. Fair enough. I have several things, but um, I think that it it really depends on where they are. But in the if they're at the very beginning of a development of an app, Mm -hmm. I think the key here is to think through how do you reach the most people, the most. How do you make this app appeal to the broadest audience? That's great. Yeah, and so. I, I think what happens for a lot of app developers is they have an idea and they get a character in their head, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then that's the way they're going to go. And, and there's nothing wrong with having a beloved character that takes us somewhere on a journey or teaches us something. That's great. But if there's a way to broaden how kids identify with the app, I would encourage that kind of development. Now, is that that there's an avatar maker at the beginning and that somehow that child can make something in the app look like them, right? right? right. Or something that they're interested in so they have a, a personal commitment to something. Um, I've seen apps where that main character can be, a kid can control what the main character looks like. Mm-hmm. Isn't that wonderful? Right, you know, that's, right. a, that's a great way to do it. Yeah. Or here's the other thing. Lots of times there's lots of people in these apps. It's not like it's just one character. Lots of times there's several crowd scenes or you're involved in situations where there's multiple people. And again, I can tell you so many times I open up apps and I see a sea of white faces. Right. Right. And that isn't a reality of the world. I don't know <laughs> why people do that. Sure. And I, you know, so again, think in terms of how do you reflect a diverse world within apps for yeah. kids. 
The yeah. other thing is that um, I, I'm, I'm going to give you an example this time. <laughs> um, there's an app that I really thought just did a really nice job of changing the way girls think about something. And it's called Cool Careers Dress Up for Girls. And it's cool by Careers. Uh, okay. Dress careers, Up for Dress Girls. Up for girls. Uh-huh. And it is a dress up app. Okay. Right. So, and it is for girls, although if boys wanted to play, I'm trying to remember if she ever added a boy, I don't remember. (laughs) But the point was that up to that point, every time you'd seen a dress-up app for girls, it was going to be virtual dolls being dressed up as princesses, Mm -hmm. models, actresses, fashionistas. I mean, that's the way that genre of apps, and they they are popular, no doubt about it. But this woman, her name is Laura Taldery, is the name of the woman who has created it. She said, you know, let me take a familiar pattern of play for girls and turn it upside down. And what she did was she created a dress-up app where girls are dressing up to be doctors, race car drivers, senators, scuba drivers, astronauts, surgeons. Firefighters. These are the people that are in this app. Right. Uh, science, uh, computer programmers, police officers, mountaineers. I mean, just you know, a wide range of you. Any you know, it, it, I think the one thing that I came came away with was if they can if they play the role, they can be the role. Was right. the way I kind of came out of that app. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay, now that's changing the way we think about things yeah. and little girls think about things. Right. So right. I mean, I think that those are the kinds of um, uh, thoughtful, thoughtful uh, brainstorming that can yeah. go before you create an app. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I, I think we'll definitely link to that um, to that app, and it just makes so much sense, right? Like there, yeah. Um, you know, the, the natural stereotype is sort of like you mentioned to create these sort of fashionistas and, and actresses, et cetera, instead of sort of the, the roles that plenty of women have today and that girls need to sort of see, um, in, instead of the usual. So that, that's yeah. great. Um, and there's another, here's another example, you know, the, the, as we earlier discussed, the Toka book of people right. are doing things right. Well, Toka life school Mm-hmm. It's the first app where Tokaboga actually introduced a wheelchair. So they, they create a series of apps in which kids can um, think of them as play sets. You can right. move characters in and out of situations. And then in the school, it, this one's about school, but in the school one, you can, you know, you can explore a science lab. You can right. go to the cafeteria. You right. can be on the playground, whatever. But you can move kids and adults into the scene and so the key is that they have multiracial mm-hmm. very diverse multi-generational kids I mean you can choose who you're going to tell stories about right. that's fun for the first time they actually introduced a wheelchair and so that anytime you could take and in each scene there's a wheelchair available mm-hmm. and so you can take a character and put them into the wheelchair and now you have this ability to tell stories involving handicapped people. And that's mm-hmm. an important, different way of thinking about things, right? Right, so I absolutely. Loved, I love that one. Um, 
if you don't mind, I have time. I have one more. Like, of course, of course. Right. Yeah, no, That's, absolutely. Um, another very popular uh, app developer is a group out of uh, England called Nosy Crow. Yes. Nosy Crow is a book app developer, and they, they are known for um, creating fairy tale uh, apps yep. that are interactive and you get involved in retelling the fairy tale. Right. So they've done a series of them. And, and one of their more recent ones was Goldilocks and Little Bear. Yeah. And what I liked about that, first of all, they they did something innovative in the app in the sense that they told two parallel stories. They have Goldilocks, you know, going and looking into the to the bear's home. But uh-huh. they have the little bear, the, the littlest member of the bear family happens to be looking in Goldilocks' house <laughs> right. at the same time. And you have this ability to flip your device upside down. You rotate it. And when you do that, the story changes. So you can wow. either be doing the story from Goldilocks or you can right, do it right. a little bit. The reason I'm bringing it up in terms of d- diversity is I thought they did something brilliant. The uh, Goldilocks parents are are represented but as different races you can see different skin color skin tones going on there uh-huh. they did the exact same thing on the bears the parents uh, oh wow there the fur <laughs> is different colors so it's subtle things but right. i thought wow yeah. you know they, they're thinking that, that they're thinking through it at that minute level yeah and no they, i've heard i've heard fantastic things about that app i've actually been trying to get um, Kate Wilson, the uh, the CEO of, of Nosy Crow, to come on and yeah, they're a wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I actually have a um, on the Tech with Kids YouTube channel. We do um, video reviews and we show you why we like things. Yeah. And, and we've done the Goldilocks and Little Bear, so your audience might actually they can just go watch it. And yeah, it, for sure. You know, no, we'll definitely link review, to it. But, but then you will, you know, you can actually really see it. The other thing this group did was then when they did the Snow White um, app, that was mm-hmm. earlier than this one, they made one of the dwarfs a girl. <laughs> yeah, I remember you this. Know? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So they're just uh, they're thinking through how to change up, you know, in the in the world we live in, sort of taking traditional stories right. and moving them in a new direction. Right, right, oh. absolutely. I think that's you know there there are certain. Um, I think there's just so many lenses of diversity and sort of how you how you view the world. And obviously, gender is a big one. Race is a big one. I think right. the, the special needs handicap that you mentioned before is yeah. is one that um, I think sometimes um, gets forgotten and ignored. And so I think that is another critical piece that sort of you have to reflect the world that, that you live in, like you mentioned in, in your crowd scene. So um, this has been and, great. Well, and one more thing, and I think that sure. is that that you know one of the things that came out in the in the the panel that you moderated was this need for sort of this ability to check where you are and i think that's where your toolkit becomes helpful to these app developers because what we heard from the ceos that are trying to do it is they all agree that you need sort of checklists you yeah. can't just assume you're going to do it right you need that toolkit and yeah. so I think that's why the work that your group is doing, Kabir, is really important because nobody can do it right just off the top of their head. People Absolutely. need tools. Yeah. 
No, for sure. I, I appreciate your, your thoughts. And I, I absolutely agree with you that, um, you know, people care about it and they want sort of a, a way to make sure that they're doing it right. And they're asking themselves right. the right questions. So, uh, Ginny, yeah. thank you so much for, for coming on. I really appreciate it. You're a, you're a champion for the industry. Um, and, and we, we really appreciate all that, all that you do for it. Oh, well, thank you. I'm so glad to come on and, and, and be able to talk about these issues. Thank you for giving me the ability to do it. Thank you. Thank you.